Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. A divine appointment, that's really those gospel opportunities that are so extraordinary that they can't be explained naturally and couldn't have come about apart from the direct involvement and leading of the Holy Spirit. Those are the kinds of things that when you experience that, you walk away thinking this is just, you know, there's nothing like this. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Acts. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, in a message titled, Divine Appointments. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So here we are in uh, the eighth chapter of Acts, picking up our on our journey through uh, the book of Acts. And today I want to talk about divine appointments. We refer to these moments like we read about in this story today. We often refer to them as divine appointments. And a divine appointment, that, that's really those, those gospel opportunities that are so extraordinary that they can't be explained naturally and couldn't have come about apart from the direct involvement and leading of the Holy Spirit. Those are the kinds of things that when you experience that, you walk away thinking, this is just, you know, there's nothing like this. And I believe that we should expect divine appointments. We should ask for divine appointments because I think God wants to arrange Uh, those for us, just like he did here in the story with Philip and the Ethiopian. So so what I want to do is I want to first just give us a little bit of background, um, looking at a few things here. Uh, Starting with Philip, let me just remind you of who Philip is. We were first introduced to Philip back in the sixth chapter, and he was one of those seven men that was chosen to basically just serve in a very practical aspect of ministry. He was distributing food and clothing and things like that to the the widows in the church, to the poor in the church. So that's, that's where we first meet him. He was chosen to do that. He was a man of a good reputation. He was full of the spirit and wisdom. And so he, along with Stephen and five others, they, they were chosen for that. Now, as I mentioned last time, he, would later be referred to as Philip the Evangelist. And we saw in our last study, we saw that it was Philip, this servant in the church of Jerusalem, who went to Samaria and preached Christ there. And it was through Philip that uh, Simon the sorcerer was influenced. We saw all of that. And so that's the person that we're still dealing with here. And and once again, we see he's, he's living up to his title, or or the way he's referred to later as the evangelist, because that's exactly what he's doing in the story here. So that's the first thing. The second thing is just to note, we have a reference here to Ethiopia. Now, of course, we have today in Africa, the country of Ethiopia. It's not the exact same uh, geographical region that it was back in biblical times. So today, of course, 
you know, if we look at a map, we see Ethiopia. It is East Africa. It's more south than this Ethiopia would have been. This Ethiopia would have been what we know today as Northern Sudan and, and probably Southern, some of the Southern area of Egypt. And uh, also what, what used to be known as Nubia would, would probably be what uh, the Ethiopia was back in that day. So just for a little uh, clarification there. And then we, we read here about this Ethiopian eunuch and want to talk about that for a moment. So a eunuch. Now, a eunuch could have been, well, there, there are two possibilities with, with the eunuch. Some ancient kings required that those serving in particularly powerful political positions, that those men be castrated. And that was in order to protect the king's harem. So when you think of eunuch, if you know what that, if you're familiar with that word, that's usually what you think of. And that's correct. But as time went on, the, the word really began to refer to a, a high-ranking political official. It didn't necessarily anymore carry with it the certainty that the person was a physical eunuch. It became just sort of a title. So with this person that we are looking at here, we know that he was definitely, because the text tells us, we know that he was in like in this official capacity. He holds this, this high position in the kingdom of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. So maybe at this stage and in that particular environment, it was just a reference to his position. It had nothing to do with his physical condition, but it might have also had something to do with his physical condition. And if that was the case, the interesting thing is here to note that the law had stated that a eunuch could not enter the assembly of the Lord because of that condition. So if he actually was uh, physically a eunuch, then even though he's gone to Jerusalem to worship, he, he really could not enter fully into that worship there. And so that's just kind of general background for eunuchs. But then we come to this particular man. And so it says about him, notice that he was a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this man was probably a Jew. And the reasons being, number one, he's going to Jerusalem to worship. This is an 1,100-mile journey. At least if you calculate it from, say, Khartoum, which is the capital of northern Sudan, to Jerusalem, that's 1,100 miles. That's a long ways. So, uh, you know, perhaps he had gone there on official business, but he also comes to Jerusalem to worship. So because of that, and secondly, as we find him later in the story after he's visited Jerusalem, he is reading the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And so both of these things would sort of lend to the fact that he 
was a Jew. He could have been a Jew just by birth because even back at the New Testament period, there were what were known as Ethiopian Jews. Those who were um, black Africans, but nevertheless, they were Jewish. Now, even today in Israel, you have what are known as the Falasha Jews. They're the Ethiopian Jews. They're black Africans, but they're Jewish. They don't really like the, the title Falasha. They prefer to be called uh, Beta Israel. But in 1975, they were officially recognized as Jews by the Israeli government and given permission to, to immigrate into Israel. And in the 80s, uh, the Israeli government paid for uh, tens of thousands of them to be transported from Ethiopia up into Israel. So if you go to Israel today, you'll see a number of Ethiopian Jews. So the man was either that or he was at least a Jewish convert. He was a proselyte. He had become Jewish uh, by faith. And the reason I say that is because even though the gospel is extending now all the way down into Africa, it has not yet been extended to those who would be considered Gentiles. That doesn't happen till Acts chapter 10. And it's very clear in Acts chapter 10 that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. That's, that's where it takes place. Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and, and then it becomes recognized that God is working among the Gentiles. So at this point, again, even though it's geographically spreading, the gospel is, it hasn't yet crossed the, the boundary from Jew. Even though the Samaritans were sort of Gentiles, they were also sort of Jews. So the big transition hasn't happened there. So that's just a little bit of the background. Now, let's look at the story itself. And I want to speculate a little bit here, but I think there's a basis to do it. I want to first of all, look at the state of mind of this eunuch. So here's a man who's traveled a great distance, as we've already said, and he's been to Jerusalem to worship. And now he's heading back to his country. And I would guess that he was dissatisfied in what he experienced in Jerusalem. I would imagine if he made that long, long journey, he was, he was going there with a great expectation of having, you know, some real significant experience with God. But I don't think he would have had that. Because if you think about it, at this point, the whole temple worship is not just corrupted like it had been earlier, even in the time of Jesus. We know it was corrupted. Jesus had to go in and cleanse the temple. But at this time, it is, as the Old Testament put it, it is Ichabod. The, the glory has departed. The Spirit of God is no longer there. They've rejected the Messiah. They crucified the Messiah. They're going on with their religious activity, but it's completely dead. God is not there at this point. So if this man goes to Jerusalem seeking God, I, I think we can safely say that he is leaving disappointed. So that's, again, speculative, but I think it's probably the case. But also, if he was physically a eunuch, then he would have experienced an element of alienation as well. Because those who were overseeing, uh, had they 
recognized that that was the case with him, which, I mean, it seems like it's public knowledge, they would have kept him at a bit of a distance because of the mosaic uh, restriction. So I think it's safe to say that this man did not find what he was looking for in Jerusalem. He did not come away with that sense of peace and fulfillment and just that confidence in the reality of, of, of God and you know God's love for him and all of that. And we see that at, on his way back, he's reading the prophet Isaiah. So it seems like just the fact that he's reading the prophet Isaiah, there, he, he's, still, he's still on a quest. He's still searching. Now, maybe, again, this is speculation, but maybe in Jerusalem, he heard about this Messiah, Jesus. And, and maybe somebody even pointed him toward the prophecy of Isaiah. We don't know. But it is absolutely astounding to see the passage that he's reading. Now, how many of you have ever read the book of Isaiah? You read the book of Isaiah? It's 66 chapters. It's, it's a long book. But this was not a book. This was a scroll. You know what a 66-chapter scroll is like? I mean, it is a long scroll. And remember, we have chapters in our Bible. We have chapters and verses because in the... 16th century, somebody decided to do that. They thought it was a good idea, and I think it probably was a good idea, but they didn't have that back then. So it wasn't like he could open, it wasn't like in Jerusalem, somebody said, hey, read Isaiah 53 on your way home. Check that out. Um, there was no Isaiah 53. But in the, in the, well, actually, probably, you know, closer to the end of the scroll, because there's 66 books, he comes across this text that is Isaiah 53. How many of you have read Isaiah 53? Ever read Isaiah 53? Great. Actually, you guys win, because last service, there were less people that had read Isaiah 53. So why is Isaiah 53 so significant? Because Isaiah 53 is the clearest prophecy concerning the, the theological ramifications of the suffering of the Messiah. Now, there are two great Old Testament texts. There are many Messianic Old Testament texts, but the two great passages that speak of the suffering of the Messiah are, are Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And the difference is this. Psalm 22 really looks more at the suffering of Christ from the, the, the physical standpoint. As a matter of fact, if you read Psalm 22, how many of you read Psalm 22? You read Psalm 22, and you get a clearer picture of what happened on Calvary than you do in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So Psalm 22 gives a, a clearer depiction of crucifixion than, than the gospel writers even do. So that's a one great passage in the Old Testament. The second is Isaiah 53, which looks at the same thing, but from a different standpoint. What uh, Isaiah is looking at is that same suffering Savior, but looking at what was accomplished or what was you know, happening during that suffering, the theological realities that were transpiring and what that means for us. So this is the passage that... 
this man is reading. And like I said, speculatively, but perhaps it was the case. Uh, there were still Christians in Jerusalem, even though they had been scattered because of persecution. We know the apostles were there. It seems that Philip had gone back there and was spoken to by the angel, you know, to head south from Jerusalem. And so maybe this man had had some kind of encounter there in some way he had heard in some sense about Jesus. We don't know for sure, but, he, but he's definitely leaving, having not found what he was looking for when he went there originally. So that brings us to Philip. So Philip is there in, I, I think he's back in Jerusalem, and here the angel of the Lord speaks to Philip. He says, arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So there was a road that went there, and as they would continue on that road right on through Egypt and right back to Ethiopia. But, but Philip is now called by the Lord to go down to that road. And so he responds, and that's where we see that here is this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's returning home, and verse 28 says, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So this, this is also amazing. So first of all, Philip is in, let's say he's in Jerusalem. And the angel of the Lord says, I want you to go down to, you know, this road that goes south to Gaza. And so Philip he responds. He does that. But, but now he gets there, and who knows if he gets there just exactly at the same moment that the caravan is passing by, or if he has to wait a while and sort of wonder, like, okay, what, what am I doing here? Felt like, you know, the Lord told me to come. Here I am. But now he sees that this chariot is passing by and that this man is reading Isaiah the prophet. So the spirit says, go and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? So picture this in your mind. Here's a caravan that's going along. And this is a delegation from another nation. This is the, the representative of the queen. So this is a serious caravan. And the, the main guy the most important person, it's the eunuch. And so he's there in his chariot and he's reading this. So picture this in your mind. Suddenly, this guy comes running up alongside of you because that's what it says. He's running alongside and he shouts out to this man, hey, do you understand what you're reading? I mean, this is, if you think about it, visualize it, visualize it it's kind of comical. It's like suddenly this guy's running alongside going, hey, do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch says, no. How, how can I know unless somebody helps me? And so the eunuch says, maybe you can help me. Why don't you come on up and we can talk about it? And so that's exactly what happens. So Philip, he's invited into the man's chariot. And the man says, I, you know, how can I know unless someone guides me? And Philip 
came up, and, and it was the place in Scripture, as we've already pointed out, it was the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Wow, what an amazing question. This is like the, this is the kind of question that you die for. It's like, you know, somebody basically just saying, hey, can you tell me about Jesus? I mean, that's really what the guy was saying, even though he didn't know it. But, but again, remember, this portion of scripture. Now, here Luke just tells us a little bit about what he was reading. But if we back up just a bit, I want to give you the full context of, of what this man is reading. So here's what he's reading. Verses three through six say this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The chastisement for our peace or the punishment that brought our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He reads that and he says to Philip, who is he talking about? Is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about some other man? And it says, and from that scripture, Philip preached Jesus to him. And what a wonderful moment. Man, this is like, this is one of those divine appointments. This is a full Holy Spirit setup. And now Philip is just walking into it. And at this scripture, he preaches Jesus. Now, obviously, this is an easy scripture to preach Jesus from because it's all about Jesus. So he would have gone on, Philip would have gone on just to tell him the story of Jesus. But then also, obviously, as we read on, you know, Philip also communicates to him the need to receive Jesus, the need to believe in him. And we see that that's exactly what the man does. And so the man was converted. He was baptized, it says, and he was sent on his way rejoicing. Now, the application that I want us to take away today is this. Number one, these types of things still happen today. See, this is the thing we've got to know. This is the, the book of Acts, the Bible itself in many senses, but the book of Acts is a model for successive generations of believers to know how God works in and through his people. And now, let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. So one of my favorite books over the past couple years was a book called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Fantastic book. Well, she has made sort of a children's version of the book. It's called 10 Questions Every Teen 
should ask and answer about Christianity. She did such an amazing job with the Confronting Christianity book. It was actually the book of the year. I know that this one is excellent as well. So I want to encourage you, especially if you have teenage children, to pick it up for them, read it along with them. If you are a school teacher, you interact with young people and you want to know how to help them, this will be a tremendous resource. So 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, my recommendation for this month. Again, this month's resource is a book titled 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. You can order the book 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin to help you equip the next generation to wrestle with the challenges raised against Christianity. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Acts. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.